Hello everyone, and welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 2. Today, we delve into the meat and potatoes of the history of Carthage. And by meat and potatoes, I really mean sad slivers of cabbage. Because, like most ancient civilizations, the mists of time have obscured our view of the beginnings of Carthage. Fortunately for us, though, it still makes for a great story. Last time, we left off with the Phoenician Golden Age of trade, industry, and power. Phoenicia had risen from being a narrow strip of coastline into a thriving economic region, thanks to her magnificent sailors and merchants. The city of Tyre ruled over all the other city-states due to its strategic position, its prestige, and its wealth. For a time, these things continued. Phoenician sailors went further and further afield, bringing home new and more valuable goods. Shipping was made safer and more efficient due to many Phoenician advances in sailing, with two discoveries being the most beneficial. The first was the use of the Polaris, or Pole Star, in navigation. This allowed for sailors to travel by night instead of anchoring or lying idle, drastically reducing the time of voyages. The second was pioneering techniques in shipbuilding, which included the development of the keel, which for us non-marine people is the projection which runs along the bottom of the ship from front to back, or bow to stern. This allowed for greater stability and steering capabilities in ships, increasing safety and decreasing time lost. The Phoenicians also benefited from coating the wooden planks of their ship's hulls with bitumen tar, making the ships watertight. Although arguably coating ships with tar or pitch had been known since the days of Noah's Ark, the Phoenicians recognized its obvious advantages of decreasing destructive leaks and allowing for safe and dry cargo holds. These innovations allowed for the Phoenicians to travel longer distances in a shorter time, while still maximizing storage space for tradable goods. Using these improvements, Phoenician ships could travel approximately 24 miles a day under their oars and sails. With these latest and greatest ships and their rapidly expanding trading network, you'd be pardoned for thinking that the Phoenicians were set. And for a while, you'd be right. But a new menace was rising in the east. In the 9th century BC, Tyre fell under the shadow of the Assyrian Empire. Now, the Assyrians were not the sort of neighbors that you invite over for a picnic and a barbecue. No, they were notorious for both their military prowess and their fondness for cruelty. Specifically, flaying or skinning their captives alive just for the fun of it. I don't know about you, but if I had a skin-flaying beast man next door to me, I would try to be on my best behavior and avoid offense. And that's exactly what the Phoenician cities, including Tyre, did. But another thing was in Tyre's favor when it came to the Assyrians. However unbeatable the Assyrians were on land, they were useless landlubbers when it came to the water. So, they allowed the Phoenicians a degree of autonomy and independence that the other conquered peoples just didn't get in exchange for access to the Phoenician trading network. Because if there's anything the Assyrians loved more than a good flaying, it was an epic home improvement project. To take one example, 
King Sennacherib of Assyria built a home in Nineveh he humbly chose to call the palace without rival, which was over 107,000 square feet. Talk about an exotic crib. Scented woods, silver, copper, ivory, glazed bricks, and costly furniture were all in high demand to support the Assyrian king's public building projects. This, of course, put a substantial strain on Tyre's trading networks. But when trying to feed the 800-pound gorilla next door, it made sense to keep your mouth shut and quite literally be glad you still had your skin. Under pressure from the Assyrians to provide more and more goods, the Phoenicians began to expand their overseas markets and establish colonies in the central and western Mediterranean. As the foremost of the Phoenician cities, Tyre led the way in these colonization efforts, and settlements were established on the islands of Sardinia and Corsica, the Balearic Islands off of Spain, along the coast of North Africa, and along the coasts of southern Spain. Nearly all of these colonies were built on peninsulas, or islands and areas that offered great landward defensive positions. Also, in true Phoenician style, nearly all had one or sometimes even two natural harbors that provided easy accessibility to the sea. The colonies in Spain were particularly beneficial, since the mines of Spain could supply the Phoenicians with the silver, lead, and iron the Assyrian kings demanded. One ancient writer, Diodorus Siculus of Sicily, actually claims that during forest fires, the rivers of Spain ran with molten silver. I personally believe that Diodorus is guilty of a slight bit of exaggeration, but that could just be me. Regardless, the settlements in Spain were perhaps the most valuable of the new colonies, due to the seemingly unlimited supply of metals the Phoenician merchants could extract and send east to satiate the Assyrian appetite for shiny things. One notable colony in southwest Spain was a Tyrian city called Gades, modern-day Cadiz. Not only was it famous as a hub of trade on the Atlantic, it was a source of the garum, a fish sauce made from decomposing mackerel intestines, salt, and vinegar. Gotta love some rotting fish gut sauce, am I right? But the ancient world craved it, and by supplying that demand, Gades built a commercial bonanza off of rotting fish. So there's a fun fact. With the backdrop of Assyria and Phoenician exploration slash colonization in mind, we now come to the legendary founding of Carthage. Before we start, it is worthwhile to note that ancient records such as Menander of Ephesus's list of Tyrian kings, which Menander claims he gathered from Tyrian court records, mention both Dido and Pygmalion as being members of the Tyrian royal house. Additionally, they mention that there was a rift between Dido and Pygmalion, lending further credibility to at least the bare bones of the following story. However, as with most legendary figures, it is really anyone's guess how historical they were in reality. But it makes for a good story. In 831 BC, King Matin of Tyre instructed that his son Pygmalion and beautiful daughter Dido were to become joint king and queen on his death. Pygmalion did not like this arrangement one bit, though, and, surprise, surprise, on his father's death, rallied the Tyrians to elect him their sole ruler. Although Dido had been snubbed by little brother Pygmalion, she wasn't totally out of luck. 
See, Dido was married to a fella called Acerbus, who was both her uncle and the high priest of Melkart, patron god of Tyre. Melkart, as we remember from the last episode, was basically the Phoenician equivalent of Hercules, and he ruled in the Phoenician pantheon alongside his consort, Astarte. Despite being married to her father's brother, it seems that Dido loved Acerbus, and they had a good marriage. Acerbus's position made him at least the second most powerful man in the kingdom, perhaps even equal to King Pygmalion himself, since Acerbus was head of the massive temple complexes and powerful priesthood in Tyre. Rumor had it that Acerbus was also a very wealthy man, who had secretly buried the majority of his wealth to keep it away from his nephew's grubby fingers. So, Pygmalion did what any normal person would do in these circumstances, and promptly had his uncle murdered, thinking to both rid himself of a powerful adversary and to force Dido to reveal where Acerbus had hidden his wealth. Dido was understandably alarmed by these events, but she was a shrewd politician who knew how to handle little Broski. Pretending that she didn't bear a grudge over her husband's murder, Dido requested that she be allowed to move into Pygmalion's house since her home had too many painful memories of her time with Acerbus. Pygmalion readily agreed, thinking he could keep a better watch over his older sis if she lived in his palace rather than in her own. When the porters arrived to carry Dido's baggage to Pygmalion's house, Dido asked if they would help her take some of it down to a ship on the docks so she could throw the bags overboard in the sea as an offering on Acerbus's behalf. Seeing no harm in this, the porters did as requested. Once on the ship, Dido, after throwing the sacks overboard, casually informed the servants that they had just helped her throw Acerbus's hidden treasure overboard. Alarmed by this revelation that they had been the unwitting accomplices in destroying Acerbus's treasure by sending it to the bottom of the harbor, and fearing King Pygmalion's wrath, the attendants were easily persuaded to join Dido in her flight from Tyre. In reality, the bags Dido had thrown overboard were only filled with sand. The ones with the service's money were safely stowed on the ship below. I wonder if there was an awkward silence when Dido told the attendants she had double-fooled them, and they were leaving their homes for no reason. Anyhow, it was too late now to turn back. Before they left, several other nobles who were fed up with Pygmalion joined Dido on her ship, and the party set sail for a new life. When the ship stopped by the island of Cyprus, the high priest of Astarte agreed to join the exiles on the condition that he and his descendants would always be the high priest of that goddess. Also, 80 young women who were working as temple prostitutes were seized to be wives for the men of the party because apparently, in the ancient world, prostitutes made the best wives. With the wife-seizing business out of the way, the company set off for North Africa. Upon arrival, citizens from Utica, a Tyrian colony on the North African coast in what is now Tunisia, welcomed them and gave them gifts. The local king of the Libyans, Yarbus, was not so enthusiastic but he brightened up when Dido asked him for only the amount of land that could be enclosed within an oxide. Yarbus, who must not have been great at riddles, readily agreed. Dido and her men then took the oxide and cut it into thin strips. Using these strips, 
they marked out a large area of land around a rock hill which rose 200 feet above the sea. Caught by his promise, Yarbus had to give the land to Dido and then retreat back into the desert, probably to work on his puzzle skills. This rocky hill would later be known as the Bursa, from the Greek word Bursa, which means oxide, in honor of this story, although possibly the name could also derive from the Phoenician word Bertu, meaning fortress. I personally like the oxide version, but you can take your pig. Regardless, on this hill, the city of Carthadasht, or Carthage, meaning new city, would be built. Later, the hill would contain the citadel of Carthage, where some of the final grisly battles of the city would be fought 700 years later. Traditionally, the date of Carthage's founding has been 72 years before the founding of Rome. This figure comes from a Romanized Gallic historian named Nius Pompeius Trogus, who lived in the 1st century BC. Since most Roman writers assert that Rome was founded in 753 BC, this would make Dido's flight and the subsequent foundation of Carthage occur sometime around 825 BC. This would seem to agree with our other timelines from this era, including the list of Tyrian kings I mentioned earlier, as cross-reference against Assyrian court records and dates from the Bible. From these humble beginnings, Carthage grew exponentially. Within a few years, it was a thriving port city, enjoying the benefits of a superb strategic position in nearly the center of the Mediterranean, placing it at the crossroads of the lucrative trade routes from Spain to Phoenicia. Growing in wealth and power, Dido's proud city must have given her some consolation regarding her lost home. Unfortunately, she was not allowed to end her days peacefully in her new city. Two accounts exist regarding her end. In the first, Yarbus, perhaps concerned about the growing wealth and power of Carthage, perhaps because he was a sore loser over the riddle game, demanded that Dido marry him or he would declare war on Carthage. The Carthaginian messengers who were to bring this ultimatum to Dido, fearing the outcome, only told Dido that Iarbus demanded a Carthaginian hostage or he would attack. Dido, disdaining her messengers' timidity, scolded them and said that they should be willing to give their lives as hostages if necessary to protect the city. Whereupon, in a classic moment of right back at you, lady, the messengers promptly informed her that the Carthaginian hostage Iardabas wanted was Dido herself, and oh, by the way, she'd have to marry him. Trapped by her words, Dido pretended to agree to marry Iardabas, but said she first had to make a sacrificial pyre in honor of her first husband, Acerbus. Forgetting that the last time they had helped Dido make a sacrifice, they had ended up halfway across the Mediterranean in a new land, the servants did as requested. But, lo and behold, right after the sacrificing was done and while the fire was still going, Dido told the people that she would go to her husband as they desired, stabbed herself with a sword, and fell into the pyre. Now, you think it'd be difficult to make this story any more tragic, but the second account is even more famous because it gets better, or worse I guess. This version has been made renowned by the Roman poet Virgil's Aeneid the story of the legendary founding of Rome by Aeneas, a Trojan prince who escaped the sack of Troy 
and sailed to Italy. On the way, Aeneas and his exiled Trojans were shipwrecked on the coast near Carthage. Dido, seeing their plight, opened her doors to them and gave them supplies and shelter. While the Trojans recovered, Dido fell madly in love with Aeneas, who, after resisting her advances for a while, returned the compliment, albeit in a somewhat nonchalant manner. The pair settled into Carthage for the winter, but then Aeneas got cold feet and said he had to sail to Italy to found a city that would rule the world and some other stuff. Dido, understandably upset by this news, begged Aeneas in pitiful tones to stay with her since she had forsaken everything, including her faithfulness to her dead husband Acerbus, for him. But Aeneas was resolute, and he ordered his ships to set sail. As Aeneas's ships left the harbor, Dido asked her sister Anna to build a pile of all her ex-boyfriend Aeneas's stuff, including his sword, his clothes, and even the bed they had shared, saying that, like many a woman later scorned, she was going to burn it. But when the fire was kindled, Dido stabbed herself with Aeneas's sword, falling into the pyre. I'll spare you the gory description Virgil gives, but you get the idea. As Aeneas sailed away, he saw the fires burning and wondered what was happening in the city, unaware that his coldness had driven Dido to suicide. As Dido died, Virgil credits her with uttering a terrible curse on the departing Trojans, and especially Aeneas, praying that he and all his people perish. You, son, whose fires scan all the works of the earth, and you, Juno, the witness, midwife to my agonies, Hecate, greeted by nightly shrieks at the city crossroads, and you, you avenging furies and gods of dying Dido, hear me, turn your power my way, attend my sorrows, I deserve your mercy, hear my prayers. If that curse of the earth must reach his haven, labor on to landfall, if Jove and the fates command and the boundary stone is fixed, still, let him be plagued in war by a nation proud in arms, torn from his borders, wrenched from Ulysses' embrace. Let him grovel for help and watch his people die, a shameful death. And then, once he has bowed down to an unjust peace, may he never enjoy his realm and the light he yearns for. Never. Let him die before his day, unburied on some desolate beach. Hell hath no fury. Dido also called on her people to avenge her, and prophesied great wars between her city, Carthage, and Aeneas's future city, Rome. This my prayer, my final cry, I pour it out with my own lifeblood. And you, my Tyrians, harry with hatred all his line, his race to come. Make that offering to my ashes, send it down below. No love between our peoples ever, no pacts of peace. Come rising up from my bones, you avenger still unknown. To stalk these Trojan settlers, hunt with fire and ire. Now or in time to come, whenever the power is yours. Shore clash with shore, sea against sea, and sword against sword. This is my curse. War between all our peoples, all their children. Endless war. So ends the tragedy of Dido, foundress of Carthage. War would come between her children and Aeneas's, Carthage and Rome, for the supremacy of the Western world, and an avenger would rise from her bones 
who would attempt to arrest the destiny of Rome with fire and steel. But that is a story for another day. For now, Carthage would go on without Dido, growing into an economic and political powerhouse that would eventually overshadow its Tyrian ancestors. Next time, we will continue to discuss the meteoric rise of Dido City in the Western Mediterranean. Until then, take care and read more history.